Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to another episode of Drive Into the Basket. I'm Mike, and I hope you're all doing very, very well today. Uh, you're noticing, I'm sure, that I'm posting this on Friday morning rather than the typical Wednesday. Uh, just turned into, you know, this, there's nothing wrong per se. Just turned into a, a pretty exhausting week, a Tuesday night game, which is when I typically record. And it was just that and a, a combination of pretty poor time management on my part. So I uh, apologize for that. And, uh, you know, just along for the same reasons, rather, this is going to be a little bit of a different episode than, than what I typically record. Uh, I just haven't had the, the space to do the sort of preparation I would usually do for, well, this was going to be really the first of the, the season preview episodes, unless you consider Killian to be the first. But, I mean, that one was more just about his possible future with the Pistons and so on and so forth. Anyway, I digress. So I'll be uh, getting rolling on the first of those episodes to be posted next Wednesday. And for this episode, I'm just going to listen, excuse me, answer some questions that listeners were kind enough to submit, uh, most of them on Pistons Discord. And if you're a Discord user and you want to hang out in the, the biggest and best Pistons Discord server on the interwebs, uh, just check out discord.gg slash Pistons. We got a pretty great community over there. Uh, in any event, I'm going to start uh, really quick, just with something I've seen some questions about. Uh, that is Buddy Bayheim, who was signed to an Exhibit 10 contract. Uh, Buddy Bayheim, I've been over him. Not an NBA player by any means. Well, I'll get to that part later. I just want to explain what an Exhibit 10 contract is. Exhibit 10 contract is a one-year contract at the minimum. They are almost invariably non-guaranteed. You see teams sign a fair number of these every offseason. And Exhibit 10 players almost almost always end up getting waived before the season begins. You know, non-guaranteed salary means that their salary, if they're waived before a certain date, salary will not count against the cap. Now, there are some players who go into seasons and are discontinually non-guaranteed to be waived during the season, but those are pretty rare. Uh, in any event, Exhibit 10 largely just means that it can be converted to a two-way deal, and otherwise it can only go the other way. Uh, you can only convert a two-way deal to a standard NBA contract and not vice versa, but you, if, if you are on an Exhibit 10 contract, the team has the right to do that. So I'm not 100% sure why he even got that deal, uh, just because Buddy has really, really no NBA upside. Yeah, he's a good shooter, but uh, shooting in the NBA, is it's not a skill that on its own is going to make you a viable NBA player. It's just the skill that without it as a perimeter player, you're in a great deal of trouble because the NBA is incredibly punitive to, to perimeter players who can't shoot. So Buddy is an unathletic, short-armed player who, we're talking unathletic, this guy would be like the the very, very depths of the NBA in terms of his athleticism. A short wingspan, awful defender, just can't defend at the NBA level and can't create for himself or for others just due to his athleticism is even going to have trouble getting open off the ball. He's just, he's a player with no NBA upside. I, can, I remain unclear as to why he even was on a two-way contract last year. Two-way deals aren't useless for a team like the Pistons. They're an opportunity to just take some really low probability risks on upside, hopefully get a rotation player out of it. It's rare. Like typically two-way players fail. You know, they, they don't make it to the NBA and you can wave a two-way player at any time, but it does happen. Like, you know, Alex Caruso, Lou Dort, uh, the Heat have three of them, had three of them on the on that championship, uh, excuse me, that, that NBA finals roster last year, Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, and Gabe Vincent. So uh, did I mention Lou Dort? I think so. Anyway, yeah, so it, it was just kind of a waste that they that they spent. You know, they tied up a, a two-way slot last year uh, on the likes of Buddy Beheim for the entire year. The only plausible explanation that's been you know that that I can come up with is 
just doing a favor of some sorts to Jim Beheim, with whom Weaver worked when Beheim was the coach at, at Syracuse. Weaver was one of his assistants. So, yeah, it just didn't really make any sense at all. But in any case, yep, Exhibit 10 contract, very, very unlikely to be on the team next season. I just wanted to explain what Exhibit 10 was. And this is a minor point, but they do count against the standard NBA contract limit because they are technically standard NBA contracts. However, the Pistons, well, the Pistons in the first place would only be their 15th, but more importantly, teams can hold 20 NBA, excuse me, up to 20 standard NBA contracts in the offseason. They just have to be down to 15 by opening day. And the Pistons, of course, a lot could change between now and the regular season. I don't think a lot, but some stuff could change. We're only at 14 right now. You don't have to sign 15 players. You can stick with 14. That's the minimum. All right, so um, moving on. First of the questions, uh, what kind of offense can we expect to be run through Monty versus what we saw with Casey? And uh, the same can be said on the defensive side. So I am not really an expert on, on Monty Williams' offenses. I mean, I've, I've watched a decent amount of Suns games, uh, but not enough to, to consider myself really an expert in any way on Monty Williams, not at this stage. Uh, he, as far as his schemes go, I know that they have been very personnel dependent at times. Uh, certainly after the trade that brought Kevin Durant to Phoenix, things changed quite a bit. And part of that, again, was just that the, the personnel were different. You no longer had uh, Mikael Bridges, excuse me, Mikael Bridges, who turned out to be you know much more than just a 3 and D guy he was being used as. Uh, you didn't have him or Cam Johnson. Instead, you had another player in addition to Booker and CP3 and Durant, who was just a creator, just a, a shot creator off the dribble. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan of how Monty worked with that. Basically, in the playoffs, it was here, Chris Paul, here, Devin Booker, here, Kevin Durant, just take the ball and please just create some uh, a jumper in the mid-range with it. Didn't really make any effort to attack Jokic, for example. And yeah, it was uh, he didn't do too great in the postseason, in my opinion, which was maybe a little bit of a wrinkle. He's not a bad postseason coach. It was, it was a really strange situation. It was kind of frustrating for me to watch. But uh, in any event, uh, just my point is that uh, his just like well just like any other coach who is agile enough to do something like this his offenses can change based on personnel we have had a lot of pistons coaches in the past who are not able to do that but uh what i can say about monty is uh, though he wasn't my first choice i wanted the pistons to just take a take a shot on upside uh he's i pretty firmly believe going to be the best coach the pistons have had in a long time he's not perfect he has his flaws pretty much every coach has their flaws um you know, his, he can be a little bit rigid, especially during the postseason. Isn't the greatest at making, he's, he's not hopeless in this capacity by any means, but he's not maybe the greatest at making adjustments in the postseason. Um, but overall, he's a good coach. You know, he's a solid coach, without a doubt. Wouldn't call him great, but certainly a, a genuinely good coach. And I'm looking forward to the Pistons having a genuinely good coach. I mean, we have lived through a lot of bad coaches since, well, I guess it depends on whom you ask, whether it was Larry Brown or Flip Saunders. I know Flip was a little bit divisive in some ways, but, and uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on the Pistons from, from back then. I wasn't, uh, you know, I was a fan, but not, uh, not nearly as into the NBA as I am today. And then after Flip, we had that, that whole carousel. And I don't know, maybe one of those coaches was decent, but we wouldn't have known it because they all had horrible rosters. Uh, Mo Cheeks managed to go, uh, you know, I think like four games below 500 with that absolutely, uh, just absolute abomination of a roster, the 2013-2014 roster with the three big front court. It was, uh, yeah, awful. That was uh, Smith and Monroe and Drummond, so three non-shooters in the four. You had a rookie KCP who wasn't a very good shooter, and Brandon Jennings could shoot threes, but nothing else. Uh, one of the very least efficient 
uh, by true, by, excuse me, by true shooting percentage, uh, starting lineups of the past decade. Uh, and yeah, so I guess who knows, maybe he was, uh, maybe he was decent at his job. He got fired most of the way through the season for whatever reason, but, uh, this is random, but I, I mean, the last 2k game that I, NBA 2k game I played a lot of was, was 2k 13 and I played a lot of franchise mode and in the wild in that game, just purely on the power of the AI, uh, I came across when I was playing as another team, I can't remember which one, uh, a, you know, an AI managed Pistons team that had a starting lineup of, uh, Rondo, Stucky, Smith, Monroe, and Drummond. Uh, so an even worse shooting lineup in any case. And then we got onto Stan Van Gundy, who was kind of like mediocre in his first season, kind of okay in his first season, kind of more flawed in his second, and then absolutely and utterly horrible in his next two. And then we got to Dwayne Casey, who uh, y'all know my feelings about Casey. So I'll be brief about these. I'm pretty sure that Tom Gores saw, you know, coach of the year in, in the 2018 offseason and said, we just, hell yeah, we're going to get this guy coach of the year, you know, we're going to make the playoffs, everything's going to be great. And Tom Gores at that point, and, and this one continued to be the case for about another year and a half, and it had been the case since he bought the team uh, in, I believe, April of 2011, was operating under the delusion that all the Pistons needed to do to be a successful team was just win and build a quote-unquote winning culture. Uh, I, I've never really held much to that. I mean, the way you win is to have the talent and in the right got to run things, but mostly the talent and in a team that is built properly, that has everything it needs uh, from, a, from, a, excuse me, from a mechanical standpoint. But uh, Tom at that point believed that all the Pistons had to do was win and make it to the playoffs and build that winning culture and then build on that. And they would just continue getting better just because they, you know, they had won a certain amount, which needless to say, doesn't hold in the NBA. You need to have the talent and the Pistons never did. But at that point, he was still stuck on that. They just made that really, really not great trade for Blake Griffin. And at that point, I think Gores was also just still under the, the dire misconception that you were going to do well just because you had a, a superstar caliber player, which also, of course, did not turn out to be the case. Uh, Dwayne Casey at that point was already a very flawed coach. Uh, he was a guy who was rigid, unimaginative, uh, not very good on offense, and also had the, the horrific flaw of being incredibly unable to make necessary adjustments in the postseason, which had bit the Raptors many times. I remember watching game four between the Raptors and the Wizards back in 2015, and the third seed of Raptors got swept and stomped in game four and thinking, you know, Casey came in and he was a good floor raiser for them, but they got to replace the guy. Whatever the case, Casey had issues. Those certainly existed during his time with the Pistons. Uh, ironically, he was hired to win, but ended up much being much more fit for the role that he ultimately played when the Pistons in 2020. I pivoted to a rebuild, and Casey's a solid developmental guy. He's a, he's a decent, you know, he did a good job, I think, with that. You know, his players liked him. Uh, I feel like the youth, you know, did a, a solid job. We speak here behind the scenes at developing the youth. He ran a good locker room through three really, really tough seasons, a lot of losing. And, you know, I wish him well in the front office. As far as his actual on-court coaching, uh, bottom 10 coach in the NBA during his time at the Pistons. I feel pretty pretty strongly about that. Um just all, all of his issues were just there, all, all the same issues he'd always had. Uh, in case he was fossilized, he was never going to improve on them. Uh, and he helped the Pistons. So a, a flaw I should mention is that he was absolutely and utterly terrible at coaching in late-game situations down the stretch. He would just completely lose control of the offense or just fall back into his personal favorite, which is here, you know, insert name of veteran creator in this, in this spot. Please take the ball and just do something with it. And that was frustrating to watch, but great for the Pistons draft odds because they lost a lot of close games under Casey. 
So I guess I'm just contextualizing the fact that the Pistons haven't had a good coach in a long time. And for the most part, they've had pretty poor coaches or outright bad coaches. So I'm looking forward to Monty. I don't, I don't anticipate watching him and having my socks blown off, but I think he's going to be the best coach the Pistons have had in almost 20 years. So I'm looking forward to that. As far as answering the question, uh, I, I wish I had more to offer. I can just say that uh, that Monty's, yeah, I, I think is going to be solid, and I'm looking forward to it. Next one, uh, what can we expect out of this offseason in terms of how big a step Cade and Ivy will take and uh, you know how big of an impact Asar will make in his rookie season? So I'll go over these more when we're closer to the season, when I do season previews. So I'll, I'll just summarize. So uh, I expect Cade will take a big step. Cade, I'm very, very bullish on. I think he has a superstar ceiling. I think he's going to be a very, very good NBA player. And I think that... Uh, I've never thought that there was any real capacity, any real possibility, and I continue to think that the, the probability is very, very low that he will not get it together as a shooter. I think he has the touch, and he was also, I mean, he was a strong shooter at Oklahoma State on a difficult shot diet, and this is an A-side for sure, but if anybody points to how he did at Oklahoma State in terms of his shooting within the arc, you just point them to the fact that he was basically like the, the, the guy on a team that had hardly any spacing, and he was swamped by two or three defenders every time he drove into the lane. He was, imp- he was impressive in his rookie season. Uh, some, a lot of what he had to offer was still upside, and I, I continue to think that, that he has that upside. I think that he'll get it together as a shooter, both on catch-and-shoots and as a pull-up guy. And once he's a pull-up guy, you have a three-level scorer because he's also a strong mid-range guy. I talk a lot about how it's very, very difficult to make mid-range pull-ups efficient in the NBA and that there is a very, very small number of players every year who attempt mid-range pull-ups on any sort of notable volume and manage to hit the efficiency threshold on those, which is about 48% these days. So uh, last season, that number included all-stars, all-NBA, excuse me, all-NBA players, future Hall of Famers, Cade and and DeJounte Murray. I mean, I know it was a small sample size for Cade, but Cade's got it. He's got it as a mid-range shooter. Pretty confident in that. And also, he's gotten quite a bit stronger. I think that'll help him quite a bit in going up the middle and getting into the basket. Though he doesn't really rely on explosiveness at all to get to the rim. He's a very, very smart player, very extremely under control on, on the drive, and just very, very crafty. I think that strength will help him get to the free throw line as well. You know, when you you know, you know take contact, you're much, much likely to get the kind whistle. Cade, during his rookie season, was the recipient of a shockingly unkind whistle. Rarely got to the free throw line, despite uh, I think I'll, I think he should have gotten to the line a lot more by rights. So I think he'll be better at scoring at the rim as well. Um, you know, we'll see if that, that lower leg was hobbling him in terms of uh, just in terms of his mobility, which is a possibility. In any case, a uh, three-level scorer like him, you couple that with his extremely high basketball IQ and his talent as a passer. And I think he'll improve upon the turnover proneness. I think that has been largely an adjustment. It should be noted, however, that there are some very good passers in the NBA who are quite turnover prone. Take Luca, for example, turns the ball over a lot. Not necessarily saying Cade is Luca, only Luca is Luca. But I think the, I, I think that, like, I get it. Cade was supposed to come in and be the franchise savior, and he was exciting in his rookie season. He didn't come in and, you know, really take the league by storm, per se. Like he wasn't amazing, but I think he was very, very solid as a guy who came in as a rookie and had to be the primary handler, like undisputed primary handler. The second best handler on the team was, was Corey Joseph and and the primary option as well. And really the period primary option uh, during about half the season when Jeremy Grant was out. 
And, and then he came in into his sophomore season and he was still having trouble shooting and then he missed the vast majority of it. And yeah, so we're still really waiting for Cade to show us what we hope to see from him. But I would just, I would suggest just bearing in mind that, you know, we saw him in his rookie year and then we saw barely anything of him in this his sophomore year. And what we did see from him, he was playing in a tibial stress fracture. That's not an easy injury to play on. You know, you can play, but it is a very, very nagging thing. I mean, I can only speak to somebody who had some awful issues with shin splints as a runner in high school, and I was not playing NBA basketball. Um, and the tibial stress fracture often will, um, I believe, has resulted, and this can often result if you have really bad shin problems and you continue uh, exercising on those, continue doing impact activities on those. I uh, haven't had a stress fracture, but <laughs> just definitely those lower leg issues suck, and I, I wasn't competing against the best, uh, best athletes in the world and, and having to do that, whatever. Again, I digress. Bit of an out, a bit of an A side there, but uh, I would reserve judgment. And I think we're going to see really good things for Cade next season. I think if if things cut right, he could end up, uh, you know, around you know in the top thirty, like the very you know the low end of the top thirty. Not expecting an all star perform, excuse me, an all star appearance, but I wouldn't say it's out of the question either. Uh, also, it's something I feel like goes very understated about Cade is his intangibles. He is very very much a leader. He is very very much. Um, by all accounts, has been just wise and mature beyond his years. Troy Weaver, I think, put it well and called him when he was called him. Excuse me, called him a human connector. By everything we heard, he was very active with the team last season, despite you know in a really a coaching and in leadership capacity, despite only playing twelve games. I think yeah, twelve games, sixteen. I don't know, I'm not looking at it right now. I know he's played a total of eighty four NBA games in his career. So uh, don't undersell the benefits of having. You know, hopefully your best player also be a, a natural leader, you know, leader of the team and a guy who's who's always going to play for his team and look out for his teammates and, and be a leader not only on the floor but off of it. I think that's something that's undersold. Uh, not only is not only the benefits of that, but also the absence uh, the absence of the drawbacks of a certain number of other NBA players who um, have kind of qualities on the other side of the spectrum, and uh, those can be hindrances. I'm not talking like. I'm not, well, obviously you look like on the, the other extreme of it, you have guys like Ben Simmons and whoever else, but I'll just go with the benefits here. Yeah, it's the intangibles matter. Uh, you can't see the direct impact of those in the court, but they exist. So yeah, Cade, leader, high character guy. If he can be a three-level scorer who can take advantage of his, his strong passing and exceptional basketball IQ to create off the dribble when he attracts doubles, um, and you can't leave him open. You can't give him any space at the three-point line because he can shoot pull-up threes. You can't leave him open in the interior because he can shoot mid-range pull-ups and he can find his way to the baskets. I mean, again, I think this is a player with a very, very high ceiling who could be very good next season. Um, <clears throat> Ivy is kind of a... That's a, a longer topic. I'll talk about his last season and the episode that's dedicated to him. There's plenty to say about it, and I was I was very satisfied with his progress. Um, I'd say there are three areas to look at. Number one is defense, of course. Uh, he was quite bad last season, so, you know, a fact about which he was very open. Uh, he is fully aware of it and was less than pleased with himself. Uh, his sh- consistency as a three-point shooter and his ability to attack the rim. And I'll, I'll speak more at length on that. Like, I, I know I just talked for a while about Cade. I, mean, I don't really have much of a season review to, uh, to do um, on Cade just because he really didn't play much. And when he did play, uh, again, he was playing injured that whole time. So... Might talk about him a bit more, but uh, I'm not going to dedicate a whole episode or you know, even half of an episode to him because there's just really not a ton to say. Uh, Ivy, there's a lot to say about, so I'll talk. Uh, I'll talk at length about my thoughts about his season 
and then you know, later in the offseason when I get to the previews, what I what I think I'll see, you know, we'll see from him next season. And Asar, um, all is going to boil down to his shooting. You know, if he's like a reliable 30, uh, you know, like 37% average, league average three-point shooter, like a reliable catch-and-shoot guy when he's left open, then he can start and probably make an all, you know, probably make an all-rookie team. Uh, if he can't shoot, he's going to be playing bench minutes and he's not going to be able to play in certain situations like late-game situations. Uh, I don't want to make any predictions. I would say I'm tech. I'm generally cautious about these things just because there's quite a bit of work that still needs to be done on his shot. And he did struggle in the OT. Uh, the things are said about his about his playoffs, whether he shot very well in the playoffs, and that's true. However, those playoffs were four games, and he hit about half of his threes for the entire season in those four games. Qualifies as a blip by any measure. I think he'll get there as a shooter. Uh, it's just like what it was with the Ivy last season. The, the mere fact that the Pistons drafted him makes me confident that they feel confident that he's going to get it together as a shooter because there's no way they would have drafted him otherwise but yeah there's work that needs to be done in a shot who knows maybe he gets it down in the offseason uh it's also possible that that shot doesn't really and this isn't unusual with rookies by any means uh that he doesn't really have a reliable shot until year two but you know if he reports to training camp and he's in you know in, in the um in preseason and you know he could he could fight is probably not he could fight his way into the starting lineup uh, at, at the beginning of the season. If not, then maybe in case of injuries or whatever else. But that would be very exciting if you were a reliable shooter, because that would be a very, very, very fun rookie to watch. It would also bode very well for the future. So I would call myself optimistic for the long term in terms of a shooting, more kind of cautiously hoping for next season. And I think we'll see him impact the game quite a bit on defense and on offense if he can't shoot. You know, he'll be still a solid passer and, and connective guy. It's just tough to be a, a positive offensive presence as, as, a, as a bad shooter, as a perimeter player. Especially, Asar also has some work to do in terms of his off-the-dribble game. And, yeah, I, I know I've, I've said this many times in the past, but even if he can just get that shot together, he could be a, a very solid starter for any team, even a, you know, even a championship team. Asar, who can shoot. I mean, that's, that's a very, very, very strong player. And... Even if he never gets that off the dribble game together, and if he does and he gets that in the shot together, then you have a player with all star upside. But it's his rookie season; he is coming into the league with some flaws, and sometimes young players just need time to work on those. So our next question pertains to how Duran will fit into Monty's offense in comparison or in the context of his previous starting centers. So I'm I'm hesitant to excuse me hesitant to contextualize it because well there are a couple factors. And number one, Monty's old Hornets Pelicans rosters were in, in a very different era of the NBA, and those centers were also I mean Momas Amico Okafor, whom a strong defensive guy. I, I don't know too much about him. I never watched much of Okafor. Uh, the other one was Anthony Davis, and Anthony Davis is Anthony Davis. I mean, I think he's become a little bit underrated these days just because he's injured a lot. But he is an absolute titan on the basketball court. And I think, if I recall correctly, he was used pretty well by Monty. This was back when Davis was still willing to play center, after which, you know, he wanted to be power forward and then went back to playing center again. Uh, I think started full time at that in this last season or the season before. I can't remember. But he was he was just an incredibly remarkable player during his time with the Pelicans, during his later time with the Pelicans in particular, as good as he has been with the Lakers. I mean, he was he was amazing in those last, uh, in, in 2014, 2015, I think it was Monty's last season uh, coaching the Pelicans. And yeah, AD was fantastic. But uh, I, I, this is all just to say that it's kind of tough to 
compare when it comes to, to Anthony Davis. So you have those two, and then you have Aiden and with the Suns, of course, and I imagine that this is, is chiefly directed, uh, chiefly in that direction. So I want to reiterate when it comes to Aiden that I don't blame Monty for that at all. I think Aiden is exactly the sort of professional athlete I dislike, petulant, entitled, uh, much more interested in his own petty grievances than in being a team player. Yeah, and also doesn't seem to be the hardest worker on the court. And uh, I don't believe a very hard worker off of it either. There are flaws in his game that, you know, shooting for one. I mean, the guy's meant to be really meant to make his uh, his money on offense primarily. He's not a bad defender, but he's not a great one and still can't shoot. So, yeah, I don't like Aiden. And I've seen no indication that Monty was unfair or really did anything uh, anything untoward. Aiden just seems like kind of a baby. So Darren and Aiden, very different players, needless to say. Uh, Aiden is a, an overall a pretty strong a pretty strong score. Well, outside of the the fact that he can't space the floor, decent mid range guy, you know, decent creator on the post. He's he's a strong finisher. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he's a very talented finisher. But uh, uh, on defense, he's more of just kind of like you know average, trending toward pretty good rather than actually strong. Uh, Duran, I don't think has that sort of offensive upside. I think he has more defensive upside. So I, I think he'll just play a very different role. I mean uh, the. What I see is Duran's ceiling on offense is is hopefully or is his ideal role on offense. Put it this way: is is hopefully a strong finisher. He's got to work on those layups, but hopefully a strong finisher, strong on the roll, vertical spacer, who can hopefully do some passing in the interior, maybe some passing out of the short roll. And you know he he flashed some upside at Memphis as you know with some kind of short pull up jumpers off the off the pick and roll. And if he can get those, great. That's just another tool in his in his toolkit. As far as him shooting threes, you know who knows. And that's that's a summer league thing. I think he attempted two of them. And I don't think the Pistons in anything but isolation situations, even if he could shoot threes, would want him out in the perimeter anyway, because these his strengths are really around the basket. Uh, I'd be very very pleasantly surprised if Duran ends up being a creator in his own right. And in terms of post play, not many guys who can you know who can effectively create offense in the post on volume. Or to whom it is worthwhile giving that opportunity against mismatches. Cool, that's a different story. So I anticipate them playing very, very different roles. I mean, Duran as a, a very complimentary player, just a finisher. He's probably they're probably not going to try to have him create much. When it comes to creating, when it comes to giving giving a guy a ball and excuse me, giving a guy the ball and you know asking him to create offense, it's not just about how good he is. It's about the opportunity cost of not giving it to somebody else who might be a lot better. Uh, or just running, you know, an offensive scheme that's going to produce a better result. So I don't anticipate Durant being used in, in that role. Whether uh, and who knows if he's if he's ever going to be an effective creator. Basically, I, I really encourage people when it comes to any of the Pistons prospects to to keep in mind that the vast majority, vast vast majority of the NBA is made up of role players, and these role players can be quite valuable. Not everybody needs to be a star. I think and not everybody is a star. Of course, hardly anybody is a star. Duran, I think, can easily be a top 10 center. All he needs to do, I think, the, the only requirement for that is for him to get his, uh, to improve in terms of his decision, not necessarily even his decision making, basically to work out some of that rawness on offense. And unlike with Wiseman or Bagley, uh, I'm quite confident that Duran's going to get that together. Now, your top, being a top 10 center is very, very different from being a top five center. There are very few centers who are like these kind of titanic difference making players. You've got Embiid, of course. You've got Jokic, of course. The first guy is going to come to mind. Uh, you've got Bam Adebayo, I think would fall into that category. Maybe Sabanis on the on the outside. Gobert used to, not anymore. 
well, I mean, I'll just restart on that list. Put it this way. I rate your guys who are like actually true 100% like game-changing difference makers at center at Jokic, Embiid, and Anthony Davis. And then kind of on the border there, you've got the likes of Sabanis, Bam Adebayo, Jaron Jackson Jr., who actually played most of his minutes at center last season, in part because Steven Adams was out and you know averaged 18.5 points per game, stretched the floor effectively, and played elite defense. Like your number of like true, true, like look at this guy, he's absolutely like 100% difference maker superstar centers is, is pretty small. So difference between being like the 34th best center and being like the 8th or ninth best center is pretty substantial. You look at a guy like Jared Allen, you know, made an all-star game and is a strong player, but is a complimentary player, and that's fine. So, you know, I, I think that Duran's got a good ceiling. I question his ability as a creator. And again, he doesn't need to be a creator to be a, uh, you know, to be a major contributor. And like you take Duran and I mean, it's just, it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask for, for a player to be good at everything. So I just anticipate them playing very, very different roles, put it that way. Also, I don't anticipate Duran getting pissed off by Monty benching him in the midst of a game seven in which the Suns are getting, in which the team, well, Aiden, the, the root of his squabble with, with Monty Williams is that Monty benched him in that game seven against the, against the Mavericks, which the Suns got absolutely destroyed in. And apparently their relationship never recovered. And uh, I don't get the feeling that Jalen Duran's a douchebag like, <laughs> like DeAndre Aiden. So don't anticipate that being an issue either. Our next question comes from uh, the rabble rouser Rod Hardcastle. And he says, simply this, do a Drummond retrospective. I'm dying to hear what you have to say about him. And of course, this is a joke question. Um, I have very, very poor things to say about Andre Drummond. I've promised not to talk about him <laughs> on this show. Uh, I will say uh, only this about him and just in response to uh, some sentiments I've seen about, oh, hey, you know, what about we bring Andre Drummond back to play backup center or something like that? So uh, Drummond's, uh, the Drummond of today, whatever you might think about the Drummond of yesteryear, uh, particularly in his time with the Pistons, is sliding rapidly toward third string status. He is, uh, so, so here's basically what happened. Well, I don't need to go into basically what happened. He's lost a tremendous amount of mobility. Uh, Drummond used to be very, very athletic for his size, like an elite athlete for his size. And he went, started going to athletic decline kind of sneakily with the Pistons in his mid-20s, maybe 25-ish, 26, he just became less explosive and less explosive of an athlete. And in his years after he left the team, I mean, uh, that athletic decline really sped up and he's lost a great deal of his athleticism. And a consequence of that is that he no longer has the mobility to effectively defend in space as a result of which he is genuinely unplayable in the postseason, And he's a worse scorer than ever. So he is not a good NBA player anymore. He is, I'd say, not a positive value NBA player anymore. And so, no, I would say, even completely irrespective of my feelings toward Drummond from his stint with the Pistons, I would say this is not a player the Pistons should have any interest in bringing back and bringing onto this roster. You know, even if I had no concerns about his attitude either, I would say just this is not a player the Pistons have anything to gain by bringing back. You know, weak scorer, um, flawed defender, you know, strong rebounder. That's about it. And that's, that's nowhere near enough. And again, can't blame him in the postseason. And uh, then the final question, uh, tell us about your favorite class in Mass Effect 2 and how will you build it? Um, yes, I have played Mass Effect 2, well, three full playthroughs and two half playthroughs. Uh, so I would say the Vanguard Mass Effect 2 is one of my favorite games is, and I know this is a question that has nothing to do with the Pistons, but I love this game so much that I'll do it, uh, is the Vanguard, which I think is one of the most enjoyable classes I've played in any game ever. 
Uh, so what you're going to want to do is build him for, you spec him for heavy charge. He's going to fully restore your shields. You want to go with champion for the cooldowns. And uh, that's just pretty much going to be your bread and butter. Um, go with squad incendiary ammo for the armor, you know, for the armor shred. Uh, Reeve to help you take down barriers. And uh, now you're not going to get much use of the shockwave or pull. It's going to be a little bit tough for you at first on insanity, on the hardest difficulty level, uh, until you get a heavy charge and then you're good to go. Uh, yes, I've, I've played that game quite a bit. And uh, if any of you are gamers, I'm pretty sure my next uh, next thing I'm doing after I record and set this up, schedule this episode to post is to, to boot up Baldur's Gate 3. I'm pretty excited for that. All right, so uh, that'll be it for this episode. And I uh, hope you all enjoyed listening uh, again next week. Going to start with the season review series in earnest. Haven't decided who it's going to be yet. And just on the subject of episodes like this, uh, always love to hear episode ideas like uh you know i always love to hear feedback i always love to to hear really pretty much anything anybody any of you get in touch with me i, I really always appreciate it and i value that a great deal so you know please if you ever have any thoughts or just want to talk about the pistons uh, hit me up on twitter hit me up on discord or on reddit all right folks so uh, as always want to thank you so much for listening we'll catch you in the next episode